You're listening to The Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and The Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today I thought it'd be fun to play a few rounds of, is that legal? And to start off, uh, last Friday, President Biden extended federal student loan forbearance from this September to January of next year. Now, if you recall, student loan repayments have been on pause since March of 2020, and it's cost the federal government about $80 billion with maybe another $20 billion in costs on the way. So my questions to you are, how long can this go on? And on what legal ground does forbearance rest upon? You know, this is actually a very difficult question. The first thing to note that this is not done by Congress. So if it's a question of separation of powers, you have to ask the question of whether or not an executive order which has a forgiveness is justified. I think it breaks down into two halves. Uh, uh, During the COVID situation, in the strong sense, you could make a weak but at least credible argument uh, that the disruption associated with your educational system is so great that you had to do something with the student loans. The disruption with employment was so great you had to do the same thing for everybody thereafter. But the longer it goes, it looks as though what you're stitching together is a set of suspensions which will turn out to be a cancellation. And I think it's pretty clear that within the system of separation of powers, uh, that if it takes legislation to put this program together, if there's going to be a wholesale reversal of the situation, it's the sort of thing which probably has to be done by Congress. Uh, This thing is certainly not one that's been authoritatively resolved. uh, But if you start looking at certain things like the DAPA program in which it turned out the pen and the phone of President Obama got him into real trouble, this seems to have exactly the same thing. It's also, by the way, I mean, a kind of a really powerful budgetary appropriation. What you're doing is it's like as if you collected the 80 or so billion dollars that's at stake in here and then funded it out again, you'd have to do it the other way. And I think, in effect, that when you start dealing with forgivenesses that this matter, uh, the way to think about them is to think of them as first collections and then distributions. And the moment you sort of put those two steps uh, explicitly into the equation, then it makes the case for congressional stuff more powerful. Uh, The other question that you have to ask is the substantive question relating to, is it a taking? Well, obviously, it's not a taking from people who've had the forgivenesses. uh, But remember, there are large numbers of taxpayers out there who are now going to be asked to fund these sorts of things. It's a complete change of terms from what the original deals were. And what you can say is the extra tax burden on people is going to be greater and that that counts as a taking. Uh, Generally speaking, fiscal matters of this sort have not given rise to these sorts of constitutional challenges. Uh, But we're in new territory now because this is so blatant relative to the other kinds of shifts that we had uh, that perhaps something could somebody could make something at it. The last point I think I would make is on the legality and the political stuff. There are many, many people who have taken out their particular loans and have paid them off. And of course, they will get no benefit from the relief. And it seems that to ask these people first to pay their own loans and then to pay a share of everybody else's loans is a is really inappropriate. The other point is there's this odd distributional effect that most of the people who have student loans are in income brackets. These are not poor people in any way, shape, or the form. And so you get redistribution running in the worst direction. And finally, Biden's original position when he was running for office is he could think about $10,000 on the forgiveness level. And it's like everything else, he sort of moved very far to the left, uh, apparently without thought. And indeed, I mean, my view about it is he is a total cipher. I don't know who 
who it is that sort of put this into his ear. Uh, names like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren seem to come to hope. Um, but it does sort of give rise to a general question. Do we have any confidence in this person as a leader, given the fact that he seems to be pushed around by forces? This is not the guy that we've sort of elected to return to normalcy. This is a very strong progressive candidate. All of these things, I think, mean that he's on politically dangerous water. I think the executive order issue is, in fact, one that will be litigated. It's going to be a little bit tricky. Who has standing and the like? Uh, but nonetheless, I think this is a, an issue which is fraught with some constitutional dimensions. So there's a difference between uh, delaying repayments, forbearance, which is what's been going on, and wholesale or, in part, student loan forgiveness. And the real question is, can President Biden forgive student loans on his own, or does he have to fall to Congress? I mean, if, if, if he can delay these repayments, why wouldn't every president just defer payments indefinitely and, and say that anyone with student loans needs assistance? Well, I mean, it, it, this is, goes back to the loan moratoriums on repayments back in the Depression. Um, in all those cases, what you did is you had situations where for 180 days or for certain amounts, uh, there was a certain kind of collection. And what happened is the Supreme Court upheld those in a case called Blaisdell, but there was this very critical difference between them. In those cases in which you were fair to defer the payment, what you did is you sort of wanted the people who were getting the deferment, they would have to pony up some kind of security so that the money could be collected later. And so when they talked about deferred ferment, it was not forgiveness, at least on its face. In this case, you've got larger sums of money, and it looks as though there's no uh, sort of saying, oh, well, we will defer this particular loan and you could pay it later with interest. This seems to be pretty much like an outright forgiveness. Uh, we don't know whether it's a forgiveness of the principal or only of the interim interest. Um, all of these questions will have to be asked and answered in the fullness of time. Uh, but I think it's a little bit closer to the prosecutorial discretion issue in which if you take an entire class of offenses like the DACA situation, say, we're not going to prosecute anybody in this class, you're going to run into much more constitutional difficulty than if you make a situation where you look at an individual person and ask whether or not, given the hardships, death within the family, injury or something like that, we're going to give a, a deferment or a forgiveness. We're not doing that. And so I think he's going to run into some kind of trouble. Uh, so who knows what will ultimately come of this. Uh, we have a new boldness in political administration. We have a relatively more conservative judiciary than we had before Trump went into office. Uh, these two things do not mesh very well together, to put it mildly. All right. So we've been talking about student loan forgiveness, but there's another federal policy, uh, I think, with some constitutional issues, uh, and that's the national eviction moratorium. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and tell us if we're going to see any judicial reversal or challenge to the CDC acting as the vehicle that's halting residential evictions. Well, we don't have to do any prediction. I mean, uh, this is a situation where the challenges are already in place. Uh, what happens is, as a statutory matter, uh, the CDC has a limited degree of discretion to deal with epidemics and similar kinds of things. And so they could demand inspections, fumigations, and things of that particular sort. I think you could easily say that uh, generally things like quarantine to people who are sick would fall into that. But what they did with almost no evidence whatsoever is 
to say, look, we think that if evictions start to take place, it's going to increase the level of COVID. There is no evidence that they prepared in an orderly fashion, which explains those particular connections. And the reason that it's extremely difficult is you also have landlords. And if you start giving this forgiveness and you don't give the landlords full substitution, uh, then the question is they are going to lose funding. And if they lose funding, they may not be able to keep these places as safe and as healthy as they ought to be. So somebody could make the argument if you don't have landlords who are solvent and responsible, uh, you're going to increase the level of COVID that's taking place in these facilities. These landlords are also tenants. And if they fall or owners, they fall behind on their own mortgages, they could end up being evicted. So this was just a house of cards. Uh, It went before a district court judge in Alabama, and she said, no, you can't do this. There's no statutory authority. Biden admitted that he did not have the statutory authority. Then there was a strong separation of powers opinion by uh, Judge Thakar in the Sixth Circuit and also another statutory interpretation opinion coming out of that same court, all of which seemed to say, look, uh, President, you've gone beyond this. Biden concedes the point. Then he says, I'm going to do it anyhow. Catch me if you can't. Well, at this particular point, you start thinking impeachable offense. I mean, here's a guy who knows that what he's supposed to do is contrary to law. He was given a slight forgiveness in the Supreme Court by uh, Justice Kavanaugh, that swing fifth vote, saying you have now time to get your house into order. Getting your house into order doesn't mean a repetition of the particular offense that was engaged in before. So he's really in very bad shape. And I think there are going to be a number of opinions that are going to come down or may even have come down saying, look, uh, Nationwide is in Injunction is in this particular case extremely easy to do because it's not the question of alleging that somebody has exceeded the legal authority. You've got two things going in this case which are unprecedented. One is that you already have a president who is acknowledging that he's acting unconstitutional. And two, you have a bunch of judicial decisions, both from the Sixth Circuit and even from the Supreme Court, which acknowledge that it's unconstitutional. And so uh, if Biden is on slippery ground when it comes to the question of what you're supposed to do with student loan forgiveness, I mean, this is about as bad as it could possibly get. And it sort of shows a kind of institutional lawlessness, which it's really hard to comprehend. And, you know, this comes, of course, after all these people are out there berating Donald Trump for everything that he did wrong, everything that he did that was illegal, often, I think, on much weaker grounds than the cases here. And so what we have to do is to ask ourselves is, will we see from the progressive um, progressive left, any kind of criticism of what Biden has done. I don't follow this rapidly, but uh, what I have seen, it's relatively quiet. They regard this as part of the new legal order. And generally speaking, if you're very adventurous in what it is that you want to do, uh, rule of law constraints of the classical liberal variety are much harder to live by. If, in fact, you're a progressive uh, and want to do this, you're going to do anything. If you're a classical liberal, you would never want to do this stuff because of both the institutional separation of powers issues on the one hand and the takings issues on the other. So I think the Biden administration is going to be slapped down pretty seriously on, on this particular stuff. Whether or not people are going to be forced to refund the money that was given after it was known to be illegal is a kind of an interesting question. But I wouldn't be surprised if some of these plaintiffs got aggressive enough to say, you knew that this was tainted money when you received it. You got it in bad faith. You have to return it to the Treasury. It will be very interesting to see what happened if those claims are brought when the money received has already been spent. And welcome to the brave new world, Tom. Well, Richard, is this a case where maybe it's the least bad option? I mean, who is the other institutional body that you think it it, it should have fallen to to decide uh, an eviction moratorium? And are there any metrics you would have liked to see them put in place to decide when to actually lift it and, and finish this up? 
See, look, I mean, the argument that is made is exactly the same as the one we talked about before. Can Congress cure this? And the answer is congressional authorization gets rid of the separation of powers issues. That is unilateral action by an executive, which is not backed by statutory stuff. But it doesn't get rid of the takings arguments that are associated with the fact uh, that what you're doing is taking money out of the pocket of landlords um, and essentially telling them that they have to go hungry. And if you're entitled to receive a sum of money, Money, it's got to be a taking if you say you can't get it. So just forget about the moratorium as such. And just assume that what happened, Tom, is that you owed me $100, okay? And what the government comes across and it says, Tom, you don't have to pay Richard. And I look at it and say, wait a second, uh, it's a taking. And they said, no, it's just a forgiveness. Well, the way to treat this is to say, okay, it's as if you would pay me the $100 and then the government rests it out of my pocket and gives it back to yours. So treat it as though a uh, forgiveness is like a payment on the one hand and a forced repossession on the other. No functional difference. Of course, it's a taking. Well, then somebody says, but they're not just doing it to you and me, Tom. You're Tom number one, but they're 50 Toms and they're 50 Richards. Richards are maybe 5,000 of each of us. And so we're doing it for everybody. It becomes a general regulation. That's going to be the argument to which the answer is no. There's no offsets that I get from any other transaction that's being done with any other person. So if it's basically 5,000 people who are doing this, what you want to think about it is that the same tort has been committed 5,000 times. And so the same taking has been committed 5,000 times. So the government turns out to be in deeper problem. They're never going to authorize under these circumstances public payments for repayment to me on the budgetary side. So what you have to do is you have to kind of strike these forgivenesses down. Um, and indeed, that's the whole point of this. There's a very famous old case called Armstrong against the United States in which it said there's certain obligations that don't belong on particular property owners. They belong on the public at large. And what the takings clause is designed to do is to make sure that you can't make these individuals. In that case, it was a person who advanced um, um, services to the government on a boat. You can't make him pay for the boat when it belongs to everybody else. You have to have the general public pay, which means you have to reimburse the guy. That principle applies here. So even if you're the strong kind of guy like I am, you may say, I can't even do this with if you want to have public repayment. But the weaker position, which is still very powerful, says you want to make a given kind of forgiveness. You have to put it on the public budget so that people can start to debate it one way or another. And this is an argument to say that the reason you put the takings clause in in these forgiveness cases is that you want to have democratic accountability, which you're only going to get if these things are put on budget. So this is a very nice way in which you could meld both the procedural concerns on the one hand uh, with the substantive concerns on the other. And this is absolutely a paradigm paradigmatic case of what's going on. Uh, so what you do is you see an administration now on two for two, uh, which is really, shall we say, walking not only on thin ice, it seems to me that they're trying to walk on holy water, as it were. All right. Well, one last constitutional question I have to ask you about, and we're getting away from, from President Biden and the federal government, and we're shifting over to at last, uh, we're shifting over to California and our upcoming recall election for Governor Gavin Newsom. Now, this has come up because there are two legal scholars out of UC Berkeley who have a new op-ed in the New York Times arguing that California's recall election process is unconstitutional because it violates the sort of one-person, one-vote principle. And if you'll permit here, here the, the, the quick argument is that they believe that Gavin Newsom could be recalled, but more people could vote to keep him in office, even though he loses, than the number of people who vote for whomever replaces him because it's voted for based on plurality. Do you think that that's unconstitutional? 
And I think this is almost in la-la land. Uh, let's go back and start with the following question first. How long has this particular procedure been in place, and how many given jurisdictions have used something like it? And I know, for example, this is exactly the procedure that was used when Gray Davis was impeached, I think it was back in 2003. And this procedure has essentially been in play uh, since it turned out that lots of people were gearing up in order to get the ballot signatures needed to put uh, the recall motion in place. Uh, so the first thing you want to do is you want to raise this sort of argument. You don't raise it two weeks or three weeks or a month before an election. You raise it before the process begins, because now what you're trying to do is negate not only an abstract process, but to negate the huge amount of money that's been sent by everybody on the way in which this thing works. So that's the first thing. You don't like to do something that way. And it's constitutional dirty pool. The second thing is, why do you want to put these two things together? First of all, if it's just a question of recall uh, by popular majority, I can't conceive of anybody who could say that it cannot be done or to take it this way. Is it unconstitutional for a majority of the voters by a predetermined, uh, uh, shall we say, procedure uh, to vote somebody out of office who's been elected? And the answer is, of course, that's perfectly okay. Um, It may not be the wisest thing in the world to do to have these kinds of referendums, but if you're talking about the way in which constitutionalism works, there's no problem. Uh, The whole referendum issue was challenged at one point on the Republican form of government theory uh, back in a case involving the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company around 1911 or so. And the Supreme Court said it's consistent with the Republican form of government to have these sorts of procedures. And it certainly is going to work for this as well. So then what you do is you get the second procedure in which what they try to do is to elect people by a simple polarity. And of course, in order for this procedure to kick in, it turns out that uh, what happens is Gray Davis has to be voted out, which means, as the two authors don't seem to take much care about it, a majority of the people have already expressed an unambiguous preference that he leave office. Well, if he's gone from office, then you look at the separate transaction on the new election done the same day. Can you elect somebody to a position of governor? by a plurality of votes. And, you know, when you're trying to talk about sort of electoral forms, uh, you can't make this into a one-man, one-vote issue uh, because it turns out that every single citizen in the state, regardless of any particular characteristic, has the same vote, and their vote will count the same amount whether it's a plurality system or a majority system and so forth. This is obviously not a case involving race or sex or any other forbidden characteristic. And sort of when it just comes to the question of what these procedures are, and there's no particular identification of a subgroup of the population that's going to be disadvantaged by the procedure, and then it seems to me it may be unwise, but it's certainly constitutional. And if it turns out that you say, oh, my God, the reelection procedure is unconstitutional, I still think that, you know, Gavin Newsom is out. And then what you do is you have a mini constitutional crisis as to who's going to take over. So here's one kind of solution you could have, uh, which is you'd say, well, the Democratic lieutenant governor now becomes governor in the same fashion that Ms. Hochul has become uh, the new governor or will become the new governor in New York now that Cuomo has decided to take his exit papers and, and, and to relieve us of his particular service. You might want to do that, but to link the two things together and to strike down the first part of the procedure uh, because you don't like the way the second part of the procedure is run when it's been run like that for donkey's years seems to be a mistake. I would certainly want this thing to go through. And then the question is, what about next time? And you know, here's one of these things that we know has kind of, shall we say, attractions and difficulties. If you recall the New York 
mayoral election, what they did is they essentially had ranked order voting. And what ranked order voting is designed to do is to say, we don't want a simple plurality. We're going to let people take into account their interior preferences for number two and number three and number four if their number one candidate is knocked out. Now, this thing turns out to be something of a procedural nightmare, particularly when you have contested elections um, late the absentee ballots and so forth. Uh, and in New York, what they did is they actually ran this through and it became very close on uh, Eric Adams, who was far ahead on the number one choices, basically almost got upended because the number two and three people essentially had a pact between themselves to put the other guy third if they were second, right? And so it turned out to be something like a 1% difference by the time the thing was done. Well, the question you have to ask is, if in fact you are going to use this kind of a plurality system Are you constitutionally required to use the ranked order voting system, uh, which has just become a very recent fad? And given the associated difficulties with these in the New York election, in the Iowa primary and so forth, I think the answer to that question has to be no. Uh, that the state can pick one of these things out. It may be uh, perfectly odd, but unless there's a suspect classification on race or gender or age or something of the sort, you don't have an equal protection violation because what you do is you have the general rational basis stuff. And in addition to this, it's really at the heart of the political function to figure out how these elections are done. So I think that if this argument were brought before a court, even in California, where I think there are probably now seven Democrats on the state Supreme Court, I think that it would lose. Uh, what's really going on here, Tom, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is there's some people out there who are so frightened at the prospect of Larry Elder becoming governor in the state of California that they will do anything to try to upset that particular outcome. The net effect of this, I think, if it actually gets widely circulated, will be counterproductive for uh, Chermarinsky and Edlin. What will happen is people will say they are really going after somebody on these very dicey ground. If they're that panicked, well, I'm going to be more likely to vote to get this guy out of office uh, because as far as I'm concerned, these are really dirty pool politics that are in there. I think it's likely going to energize the Republican voters who say that they're just simply trying to keep Democrats in power forever. Uh, So I think the net effect of the editorial is in a close election is it might tip it in the opposite direction. The fact that it's published in the New York Times will to many people in the state say, aha, there's another reason why we have to vote for Mr. Elder. The New York Times turns out to be against him. I don't know what the California papers have said about all of this. I gather I mean, I'm no expert on polling, but, you know, I basically put my wind, my fingers to the wind and come up with a very confident conclusion. I think the tide is moving in the elder direction. He's a clear number one candidate on the replacement ballot. And I think that with the COVID stuff coming back and the lockdowns returning, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the state is in pretty good positions fiscally, I think there's enough social issues out there uh, that I think, in fact, it is quite possible that Mr. Gavin Newsom will leave. Uh, In terms of the situation, I will not hide my preferences. I think California has been an absolute disaster in terms of governance. Having Larry Elder in there, I think, would be a breath of fresh share. I will offer him free advice publicly anytime he doesn't ask for it or when he does, uh, because I think California really has to dig itself out of a hole. And I think he's far more qualified than the current governor uh, to make the kind of really major transformation that that state needs in order to flourish again. Well, Richard, I'm looking forward to that podcast of hearing your advice for Larry Elder when he inevitably wins that election. 
So inevitably, you're Tom. I mean, you're the man with California things. Well, I'm going to ask you the last question. Uh, you're a bookmaker, okay? Okay. Um, I assume the odds that if Gavin Newsom goes, it's going to be elder under the system. Uh, you won't get a betting pool. It's just so dominant that it's a 98% certainty. But what's the chance you think of the um, situation that it turns out that Gavin Newsom's is going to be recalled? I think Gavin Newsom's going to probably squeak by a win and stay in office. Well, you know what? It's going to be a very, very exciting election. Okay, well, I'll let you watch it. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, and I will watch it from a distance. I mean, uh, dearly love the Hoover Institution, as you well know, uh, but the state of which it resides does not have what I regard as an ideal governance structure. Too much one-party rule, but as I like to tell everybody, I don't live in Illinois anymore. I'm now in Connecticut, which is not quite the basket case that New York and California is, but for a libertarian to pick these various addresses in which to reside does not indicate that, the, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> A, a sufficient awareness of the political defects of the institutions of which he's a part. All right. You watch the elections. I'll live with the consequences. All <laughs> just fair. Fair enough. Well, you've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.